Looking ahead to the MLB draft, who are some of the college pitchers that have stepped up their game in conference play? Let's talk about it. You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, welcome on in to Lockdown MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsey Crosby, editor-in-chief of BravesToday.com, freelance baseball writer and podcaster. Thank you for making this your first listen. Every single day, we're proudly part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. And today's episode is made possible by our friends at GameTime. Download the GameTime app, create an account, use code LOCKEDONMLB for $20 off your purchase. Last-minute tickets lowest prices guaranteed. So we're looking ahead to the MLB draft and a couple things we're going to talk about today. First, college pitchers that have stepped up their game to another level in conference play. Uh, First guy I want to talk to, right-hand pitcher Brandon Sprout of the University of Florida. This Florida rotation is absolutely absurd between Hurst and Waldrop, who we've talked about before as being a first-round draft pick. Brandon Spote, they have James Caglione, who not only can hit like 98 with the fastball, but also I think it's close to leading college in home runs. But Brandon Sprote went out there last Thursday night, so a week ago. They opened their uh, their conference play against Georgia. He went nine innings, one hit, no runs, two walks, and 11 strikeouts. So the thing for Brandon Sprote, is uh, 6'3", 210. He was drafted in the third round last year by the Mets. It's actually the second time he had been drafted. He was a seventh round pick by the Rangers in 2019 out of high school and went to college instead. Mets took him in the third. He turned that down, came back to college. His thought process was, I can be, I can go a little bit higher. And outings like this, very much helped the case for Brandon Sprout. So four games on the season, 2.73 ERA in 29 and two-thirds innings, 43 strikeouts, so 13 strikeouts per nine, 14 walks, 4.2 walks per nine, two home runs allowed. And when you look at from last year to this year, he's dramatically increased the strikeouts. He was sitting about 8.2 strikeouts per nine to right now being at 13. The walks have ticked up a little bit, 3.3 to 4.2 per nine, but significantly better as far as uh, walks and hits per innings pitch. His whip dropped from 1.3 to 0.87. And what he's done is he has electric stuff. It's just been a matter of trying to harness it and then trying to be a little bit more swing and miss oriented with it. So the fastball is a plus fastball, sits 95, can touch 99 or so. Slider is very much an above average pitch, sits in the mid 80s. I think the changeup's a plus pitch, sits in the high 80s. And last year, the big thing about this arsenal, the slider, the changeup especially, was it was much better at inducing ground balls than it was at swing and miss. He's added a little bit of velocity to the slider. He's got the fastball. The shape is still a little bit not as efficient as you would like, 
but the velocity is better. The control of it's a little bit better. And so it feels like this is now he's gone from a, from a, a ground ball pitcher to a swing and miss pitcher. It's a big step in the development. We've talked about this before. Before a lot of pitchers at the University of Florida don't seem to take these jumps. This is one where Brandon Sprout absolutely has. And if he continues doing what he did in conference play, he's going to vault himself into a first round pick versus a third round pick. I do want to see it's really small and pedantic. He has a curveball that very much is just a get me over curve. He'll use. He'll throw it maybe once an inning to try to steal an early strike. I'd love to see him improve that a little bit. Although, that definitely is the fourth pitch. So that's just kind of splitting hairs at this point. The number two guy I want to talk about is left-hand pitcher Hunter Owen of Vanderbilt. He also went out and threw a complete game last week, this time Friday night, against number 15 Old Miss, who won the national championship last year. Nine innings, two hits, no runs, one walk, 11 strikeouts. So he's a big boy, 6'6", 260, but he's got some of the velocity to go with that big frame. Fastball sits in the upper 90s. I think the curveball's really promising and then has a changeup that tunnels really, really well off of the fastball. The thing with Hunter Owen is he had done a lot of stuff in relief earlier in his career, so he's pretty raw. He's going to have to stretch out a little bit. I think he started one game last year at Vanderbilt, and then in 21, he was working strictly in relief. So, going to have to stretch out. 28 and two-thirds innings right now with a 2-2 ERA across five starts. So, you're looking at, you know, five and a half innings per start as of right now, and That's obviously skewed by a nine-inning complete game. But in 28 and two-thirds innings, 35 strikeouts, so 11 strikeouts per nine to nine walks, 2.8 per nine, two home runs allowed. The stuff's always been there. You love that velocity from a lefty, being able to get in the upper 90s. It's just a matter of of keeping the walks down, which he didn't have a big issue with that last year keeping the velocity deeper in the starts and being able to go deeper in the starts. That complete game was definitely an accomplishment there. The third guy is somebody who has not really been a starter uh, in until this season. So right-hand pitcher George Klassen of the University of Minnesota. So he's been one of those guys. The reference here that I'm going to give you is think about Tennessee reliever Ben Joyce last year. Just tons of velocity. I mean, arm speed is absolutely absurd, but he's had issues throwing strikes in the past. Uh, He's been a little wild. He still hasn't fixed a lot of this stuff, but he went on Saturday last weekend, seven and two-thirds innings, one hit, no runs, only two walks to eight strikeouts. And the two walks is the big thing for me because if you look at class and season, so far, six games, he started five of those six games. Kind of common in college. Don't read too much into it. The ERA is a is 5.23 on the season. 20 and two-thirds innings, 26 strikeouts, 11.3 per nine, to 17 walks, 7.4 walks per nine. Last year, 
um, at the age of 20, he had 16.4 walks per nine. Granted, the sample size was incredibly small, seven and two-thirds innings, and then he went to summer ball. So the start against Houston, again, one hit, eight strikeouts, two walks. You'll love that. I really do think he's going to have the best velocity in the draft. The fastball, easily 80 grade. It sits 98. He can touch 102 with it. The slider's above average, sits in the upper 80s. A lot of really hard break. He used to have a curveball, and it looks like he scrapped the curveball for the slider. And, you know, sometimes it just doesn't quite work out. You wonder if maybe some of the improved, uh, if if some of the improved control, as good as you can get it, is from moving to the curveball to the slider. I uh, have not seen him throw a change yet this year. The things, again... I like the fact that he was able to go deeper into the game to be effective like that, to hold the velocity. He's just, I've I've always been, I'm a little concerned about how high effort the delivery is. And then obviously the control, 7.4 walks per nine right now is not good enough. But it just, it reminds me a lot of Ben Joyce from Tennessee who was taken by the Angels. And if he can legitimately be a starting option and have outings like this against Houston where he gives up one hit and only two walks in seven and two-thirds innings, that really makes me think that the ceiling is higher for George Klassen, higher possibly than Ben Joyce, and is gonna can push him up into the top 100. In just a minute, I want to talk about some of the prep shortstops, some of the first-round prep shortstops in this class. But first... Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Game Time. If you've ever decided kind of last minute that you want to go to some sort of event, you want to go to uh, a ball game, a concert, a play or a show, whatever it might be, you know that the hardest part, and the reason why I commonly don't do that, is because it's so hard to find tickets. It's a very stressful thing. You're like, well, we're going to go all the way there. We're going to park and all that. Can we even get tickets? If we can get tickets... Are they going to be a reasonable price? And the worst case scenario is you have to like go outside and try to buy it off somebody on the street. And so game time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for all the sports, music, comedy, theater, whatever it is near you. They've got killer deals on last minute tickets and their best price guarantee. So you don't have to stress out over can we even get tickets to this thing? You could just decide to go and then have fun. So uh, this the app is a really uh, is really cool as far as they have deals on tickets right up to the day of the event. They'll sometimes have exclusive flashes. They're like, hey, th- the last hour before game time, we've got tickets to this college football game near you. We've got tickets to this baseball, whatever it might be. And the game time guarantee is what makes this great to me. You always get the best price, okay? If you find tickets in the same section and row as what game time is selling you and they're cheaper game time will credit you 110% of the difference. Okay. This is the fastest growing ticketing app in the country for a reason. When you go to buy the ticket, you get an image of your seat before you buy. So you know exactly what kind of sight lines you're going to have the proximity you are to the action, whether it's the field, whether it's the stage, whatever it is, it takes like two taps to buy the ticket, and they send them directly to your phone. So snag tickets without the stress 
with Game Time. Download the Game Time app, create an account, and use code LOCKEDONMLB for 20% off your first purchase. Terms and conditions do apply, but again, create an account and redeem code LOCKEDONMLB for 20% off. Download the Game Time app today. Last minute tickets, lowest price, guaranteed. Okay, looking at some of the prep shortstops in this class, there's there's three guys, and keep in mind, there's no consensus on where anybody should be. The baseball draft is so different from football and everything else, and we've got a great section in the third, uh, a great piece in the third segment talking about uh, draft models and how teams figure out slotting and all of that stuff. But some of the guys that are seen as first round prep shortstop options now, there's three I want to get to. The first one is shortstop. Arjun Nimala, I am probably getting that wrong, but so it looks like Arjun Nimala, 6-1-170, committed to Florida State right now, and one of the reasons he's going to be popular in the models and is going to end up being one of the first shortstops taken is one, he's only going to be age 17 at the draft, okay? He's going to have a lot of projection because of the physical development available. He's added on some of the showcase stuff this spring. You can see he's added some strength in the lower half, but he still has the ability to add plenty of core strength, which helps with the rotation. Uh, So you're already kind of projecting him as having plus raw power. Now, when you think about the, the physical gains that he's going to make, you should be able to look at like an impact left side of the infield, shortstop, or third baseman. There are some questions about the overall ceiling of the hit tool. Like he's he's power over hit right now, and obviously your power tool is only as good as your hit tool, but I have seen scouts who call, who call his hit tool at least average. And so depending on the development of the hit tool, you could see Namala being either a power slugging third baseman or sticking uh, sticking at shortstop. The defense is considered to be plus. Uh, the question is range-wise, as he continues to do that lower body growth, add a little bit more size, does it back the range up enough where you decide you want to move him to third? So best case scenario, you're looking at a shortstop that can hit for both power and average and can be, I mean, like a 30-plus home run kind of guy. And assuming he makes it, that's the big caveat here. We just automatically assume they do. The worst-case projection on this is you're looking at a third baseman or a left fielder with plus power, but uh, questions about where, how does the hit tool limit the overall ceiling, but still somebody with a good arm, that is able to make an impact. And then the fun fact about him is he got some of the contact ability. He played cricket as a kid. So we don't see a lot of guys with a background in cricket, I feel like. And it's just kind of an interesting little fun point there. Another first round shortstop we're looking at, uh, Colt Emerson, six foot 185, currently committed to Auburn, won't turn 18 until just after the draft, like the week of the draft, he turns 18. But right now, kind of seen incredibly quick hands and absolutely a, a plus hitter who really works gap to gap. 
He can pull something to get the power into it. He's done really well in the showcases. He's a lefty hitter, was playing third base for the under-18 World Cup team, which I think won a gold medal. And so has done really well against spin, has done really well against velocity on the showcase circuit and in the World Cup. And another guy, I think the power tool is higher than the hit. I'm sorry, the hit tool is higher than the power tool right now. Wow. Uh, Yeah, the hit tool is probably a plus. The power tool is above average. And so, and then there is a little bit of question about defense. The arm is above average. The speed is probably average or so. Uh, And so you're looking at, best case scenario, a shortstop who uh, contact over power, but pull side has enough to send 10, 15, you know, 15 home runs out, 15, 20 home runs. And then in a worst case scenario, again, assuming he still makes it like we always do, you're looking at a guy who who is going to play third base uh, and, again, has an above average arm. So defensively, he should be above average to plus. But uh, questions about the overall ceiling on the power. So a little bit of an odd profile for third base. But either way, a lot of promise for Colt Emerson. You love lefty hitters like left-handed hitters that can play on the left side of the infield. Uh, Again, committed to Auburn. We'll see what happens. Auburn's done a really good job of getting their guys to campus. They had uh, catcher Ike Irish was projected to be the first prep catcher last year, made it to campus. They had a bunch of top 100 guys that made to campus. Another guy trying to figure out if Auburn can get him to campus or not is shortstop Kevin McGonigal, 5'11", 185. And he's seen like plus hitter. He's got really good bat-to-ball skills, really good pitch recognition from him, and really good barrel manipulation to cover the whole strike zone. Probably the purest prep hitter in this draft. He's also committed to Auburn. And the thing here is there is questions about the power ceiling, right? Again, physically, 5'11", 185. He He is strong as far as like, you know, he's compact, but he's strong. A lot of the power ends up being pull side, but he also doesn't necessarily uh, try to sell out for power. He'll sometimes ambush a first pitch, you know, send it out to right. But for the most part, he's focused on the contact ability, right? He's putting the ball into play. He's hit in every showcase. He's hit everywhere he's gone. Uh, Defensively, there are some questions. He is, he's kind of twitchy. He's got good lateral, uh, Good lateral agility, good burst. The The footwork isn't necessarily that great, and the arm's only average. And so there's questions about, he'll probably stick, stick it short if he goes to college, through college. If he goes pro, uh, early in the minors, he'll stick it short. But there's a, a, a lot of scouts and evaluators who think he's going to end up needing to kick into second. And so if he does, he'll be a contact-oriented second baseman, should be able to give you above average to maybe plus defense at second base can probably give you a average defense at short but again good contact ability should be able to to contribute positively to your team uh definitely seen as a first round talent question's going to be given Auburn's track record they're probably going to get one of those guys to campus the question's just which one Cole Emerson or Kevin McGonigal in just a second i've got one of the most interesting and just fascinating articles that I've read about the MLB draft in a long time, breaking down some of the draft models, 
what goes into those and how they make them and how smart organizations use them to maximize value in the middle rounds. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at FanDuel. The NCAA tournament is heating up. Now is the perfect time to download FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. New customers get a no-sweat first bet, up to $1,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app. Safe, secure, super easy to use. You can bet on everything. Core markets like the spread, the money line, what's the total going to be. You can look at individual player props, rebounds, assists, points. And then they've got exclusive stuff like the 2 by 3 Will there be two three-pointers scored in the first three minutes? And then with FanDuel, you can combine all of these bets for the chance at a bigger payout with a same-game parlay. So don't miss your chance to get your no-sweat first bet up to $1,000 back in bonus bets when you go to FanDuel.com slash LockedOn. That's FanDuel.com slash LockedOn to learn more. Make every moment more with FanDuel, the official sportsbook of the LockedOn Podcast Network. I read a really interesting piece this week over at ProspectsLive.com, and it broke down... In an MLB draft war room where a team is making their selections, what are like, how do they go about making those picks? What factors are they looking at? How do the models work and what breaks the ties? And all of this comes back to a newer podcast called Overslot. Uh, it is hosted by Prospects Live MLB draft director Joe Doyle. And he has great relationships, great reputation within the MLB draft industry. And so partly because of that, I think they've put out, I want to say, they've put out something like 10 or 11 episodes. And they've already had GM Jerry DePoto of the Seattle Mariners. They've had GM Bill Schmidt of the Colorado Rockies on. They've had Vice President of Baseball Operations, Mike Elias of the Orioles. And then later, Baltimore Orioles Scouting Director, Brad Seelick on the show, as well as some of the top picks. We've talked about Max Clark in here before, the top prep outfielder, who's going to be probably a top five pick. He's been on the show. Just a lot of really, really good guests on there. But one of the things that I noticed that they've talked about recently, and one of the new writers at Prospects Live wrote this up, is about how these organizations make their decisions for the MLB draft. What they use as far as what goes into the model, and then how they take the output from the model and tweak it. So obviously the draft model is all of the collected data that you have about these different prospects. When these, when these prepsers go to these showcases, you get the TrackMan and Rapsodo data on the pitches that were thrown, the balls that were hit, and all of that. And then college, you have, they have all of that TrackMan and Rapsodo data from there. And they plug in all of the available stats, measurements, whatever it is that they think is predictive or descriptive into the model. And then everything is weighted. And every organization weights it differently. They have different stats that they believe in. Sometimes they create their own. Sometimes they use the publicly available information. But every organization weights it differently. They stick it into the model, which is really just an algorithm. And then it gives out in order. And that order may be looking at different things, right? Some of them may estimate this is what this guy will produce in wins above replacement at the major league level. Some of them may produce this is the dollar amount over um, 
like this is the excess value dollar wise that this player would be worth versus signing a free agent. Like it's different for every organization. Some of them will just have their own acronym for their own metric. But the point is, it'll spit out a number for the player and give a ranking of the players that are available. Uh, and then that's where the the traditional scouting uh, personnel and the information comes into play. You don't really need the models for your first round pick. For the most part, these guys, we've all identified who these players are. We all know, like, we, we all know that Chase Dollander is a first round draft pick out of the University of Tennessee. We all know he's going to be a good pitcher in the pros, uh, provided that he makes it. Again, that's just the give the understanding with any possible player. This is really good for the organizations that are looking for excess value in the middle rounds and late rounds of the draft, right? And this is where a good organization can separate themselves from a bad organization as far as the quality of the data that they're inputting, the quality of the model that they've built, and their willingness to integrate traditional scouting information with all of the analytical stuff. The two biggest things that influence that list once it comes out of the model one is the signability, and two is the makeup. And both of those things are not things you can get from databases. Uh, the signability, obviously, that comes from conversations with the prospect, with the prospect's agents and their family and all of that. Because the hard part about signability, it's not just the price to sign that prospect, right? It is the price to sign that prospect and how that impacts the rest of your draft pool. Because I'll remind you, every draft pick is assigned a slot value. And you can go over or under slot to sign any to, to sign your players. But if you don't sign the player, you lose the dollar amount of that slot value from your total pool. So Brandon Sprout not signing with the Mets in the third round last year they lost the value of the 90th overall pick from their pool. If they were counting on underpaying Brandon Sprout to have additional money to use somewhere else, that could impact your plans for multiple other players. And so that's why signability is such a big deal and it's so complicated. And that comes back to conversations with the player, their representatives, their family. The makeup is the other thing that dramatically goes into this. And if you think about it, baseball, in my opinion, is the hardest sport in the United States. It's something where, like, baseball is the only sport where you fail 75% of the time and you're considered good. If you can consistently bat 250 in the pros, you're a good baseball player. And that is failing 75% of the time. And so, like, it's, it's a different type of mental stress by being a baseball player. And a lot of times, especially with the Prepsters, they've never really failed a lot. They're so prominent. They're in the showcases. They're all of this because they've been the best player on their teams growing up. And so makeup is about the ability to handle failure. It's about their work ethic. It's about their maturity. You're going to take an 18-year-old kid if you draft a prepster. 
He's like an 18-year-old kid, and you're going to give him millions of dollars. What is he going to do with that? Is he still going to be focused on doing the right things? Is he going to be a knucklehead and go out and do dumb stuff and get arrested or, or injure himself or do something stupid? Like, that's all. that all comes back into taking the output of the model and adjusting it and tweaking it. So, uh, and then the big thing that I, this piece talks about that I really like is about organizational awareness. Every MLB organization has things that they are good at doing and that they are not good at doing. And the best organizations understand this is what we are good at. These are the traits we need to use our model to identify so that we can go out and optimize the picks that we make and the value that we can get by developing these players. So the example they give in here is a perfect example, and I'm just going to run with this one. But the Chicago Cubs, okay. The Chicago Cubs are good with pitch, like like pitchers who have either a ton of vertical break on their pitches or the cut ride fastball, right? They're also very good at developing the horizontal sweepy slider, similar to the Yankees. And so... The example they give in here, we talk about Auburn a lot on, on today's show. Auburn right-hand pitcher Joseph Gonzalez is a top 100 pitcher. LSU right-hand pitcher Ty Floyd is a top 125 pitcher. If you're just taking rankings, they would pick Gonzalez over Floyd. But when you look at what each player does well, Gonzalez is a sinker slider kind of guy. So he obviously already has a two-seam, sorry, a two-plane breaking slider, and the velocity is kind of low 90s. He's physically pretty maxed out already. Whereas Floyd has a ton of ride on the fastball, has a decent, like has an okay curveball, doesn't really you know, that's a vertical breaker. So Floyd better fits what the Cubs want to do than Gonzalez. Even though Gonzalez is the higher rated prospect, Floyd's a better fit for that organization because they can take Floyd with a with a cut ride fastball with a vertical break on his curveball. They can give him a horizontal sweepy slider and they've got a better pitcher than what they started off with. Uh, this I mean it's just it's something where whereas the Guardians, to me, feel like a good fit to take a guy like Joseph Gonzalez, a guy that uh, good pitch ability, three pitch mix, good control, and they can unlock a little bit more velocity out of him, which is just kind of the thing that they do. So knowing what your organization is good at doing, being willing to marry the analytics with the scouting, and you know it like that's the way to to be successful in the MLB draft to have more opportunities to get better players because you can raise the ceiling on this guy higher than a different like than some other organization would it's a fantastic piece i'll link it in the show notes if you want to read it i can't recommend i i spend a lot of money on baseball content already but this prospects live Patreon for this show for Overslot is absolutely worth the money. It is absolutely fantastic. So if you're if you're wanting to learn more about scouting and analytics in the MLB draft, go to the Overslot podcast, patreon.com slash overslot. Give Joe Doyle your money. It is absolutely worth it. 
Fantastic week this week. Wrapping up tomorrow, we're looking at three different position groups within major league organizations, looking at the prospects they have there, the extra talent that they have, and talking about how this might work going forward. Reminder, if you have questions for the show, I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball, show's on Twitter at Locked on Farm. You can email us, LockedOnMLBProspects at gmail.com, or drop your questions in the Locked on MLB Prospects Discord. Links in the episode description, links in the show notes. Until tomorrow's show, remember, it's always a good time to pay a minor leaguer.